They do wash the coffee mugs, just so you know. <laughs> if I had a guy at work that he would never wash his mug, and I'm like, dude, that's gross. And he goes, but it makes the coffee taste better. I'm like, no, it's not. It's a biological nightmare. So we wash them. Uh, good morning. I'm Brian. I had to read that. I'm one of several of our teachers that you will hear at Lindemann on a Sunday morning. Uh, so today is the culmination of our Mark series, Who is This Man? Uh, well, it's not quite the culmination. We're in chapter 15 of 16 chapters. So we really got like one more and then like a, a wrap-up, um, which is going to be special. Uh, I hope, I, I, I speak for myself and I hope for the rest of our team that this has been meaningful. It, it, it really has to me. Um, I've learned a lot, and I've been a Christian, you know, a person of the Christian faith, a follower, a Jesus follower for over four, four decades. So I've been doing this a while, and I've heard a lot of really smart people speak, and it's just, for me, digging in, you know how it is, when you, when you have to dig in like this and teach, and by the way, this is always, there, there's a, a frightening aspect to this. My wife pointed out this morning that yesterday when we went for a walk, because I said I have to leave this room that I've been typing and working and my books are all spread out and all this, she said, you know, your shirt was on inside out all day. And I'm like, really? We went for a walk like that? You know, uh, this topic today is, is tough. I think Jenny in the newsletter put that. Uh, I, 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 at one point, I kind of relish it, and at other points, I'm terrified of it. Uh, this, is, this is kind of a hard bit of chapter, so I apologize. Um, it, afterwards, the conversation, you can bring pitchforks and burning torches uh, to meet me. Um, it's a tough section. My, uh, <laughs> so I'll start with this. My first real, real experience with the cross, because that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, I was a teenager. I think I was around 15 years of age. I was raised in a Baptist church, uh, although I went to a Catholic high school. Uh, I was the lone Baptist in the Catholic high school. My brother was a seminarian, so I would always load up on all kinds of seminary stuff to argue with the priests, which was great. They liked it, by and large. Uh, uh, But my junior year, the priests came to me and said, you can't go to religion class your junior year. So I wound up taking typing because there was a non-priest, but he was a deacon. He was hardcore, so hardcore that he wouldn't go to his daughter's wedding because it wasn't in a Catholic church. It was that kind of thing, right? Which... Ah, just breaks my heart. So I took typing. Uh, but the one thing about being in a Catholic church was my first experience when I was a kid. I remember walking in in Ojai, where I grew up, and walking into the Catholic church there, and my parents were kind of tacit Protestants, uh, Presbyterians. So I'd never seen Jesus on the crucifix before. It had always been just a blank cross, right? And I was like, whoa. I mean, I think I was like five or six. And I'm like, oh my gosh, right? But growing up kind of in those dual worlds, I've always appreciated that the sacrifice is front and center in the Catholic Church. Um, And I'll get to that in a little bit. In the church I was raised in, uh, became a Christian when I was 13, uh, they always had a good Friday service where everybody would come. It was very solemn, um, and we had communion, right? And it was, you know, it was commemorating the Last Supper, and 
there was a lot of really good production values uh, with it because they had three crosses on the stage. All right, you can imagine it's Baptist church. So there's a baptismal in the middle, and they had three huge crosses, and they put people on them. And you can laugh because it's like, oh my gosh, right? And so I was like 15, and at that point, I'd established myself within this church as actor guy, right? Because I was raised in a boarding school that did theater, and so I grew up doing theater. And I remember when they came to me and said, we would like you to play one of the thieves on either side of Jesus. I'm like, okay. So I got there, and they gave me like this little loincloth, and they lashed me to a cross, and um, I'm up there, and... I have to admit, as a theater guy, I've always considered myself, still do, that you know, as an actor, you have to find a way to connect with the part that you're playing. And so even at 15, I was like, all right, if, if, this was, if I'm going to be real about this, I have to move. And not only do I have to move, I also have to groan. And, and because this is a painful experience, right? And so I'm up there and I'm... And I'm sure, I didn't look, but looking back on it, I'm sure the guy playing Jesus is going, what's he doing? Because the other two guys didn't move at all, right? They're like, you know, they're, this is just a tableau. The lights were very dim, and people were coming up and getting their communion, and I'm... And finally, the associate pastor comes up, and he goes, what are you doing? And I'm like... Are you, he actually said, now that I remember, he goes, are you okay? <laughs> and I'm like, yes. And, and he goes, I'm acting. And he's like, well, stop it. People, 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 people are getting uncomfortable. <laughs> And I can say this emphatically, they never asked me back. (laughs) So, this may also be my last time at Liminal. I just want to say thank you to the the teaching team for allowing me all these years to do this. Um, Anyway, uh, so we have before us today the culmination of court battles, brought on by fear, hatred, jealousy, and ultimately by betrayal. Uh, The final verdict rendered results in condemnation and execution of the hero of the story. Some say the greatest story ever told. I mean, it has everything, right? Um, For us that are Jesus followers, uh, it's more than just a story, right? Uh, I'll be bouncing across the mountaintops, as it were, because... just about every single sentence in this, in this bits of Scripture ha- have meaning, significant meaning. And I, I can't unpack all of them in a half an hour. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of bounce across. I encourage you to look up uh, the teaching notes in the Limel app for today. There you will find, like, the one word I'm going to focus on, and you're going to find a list of books. Three of them I want to draw your attention to. One is the Pillar New Testament Commentary. That's what we've been using throughout this whole series uh, by James R. Edwards. Uh, There's a book there called The Good News According to Mark by Edward Schweitzer. He was a theologian that Edwards actually taught at the same university as him at one point. I don't know if they were there together, but he definitely influenced 
James Edwards. Um, and there's a book called Crucifixion by Martin Hegel, Hengel, H-E-N-G-E-L. He was probably one of the greatest theologians of his generation. The book's thin, and it's an easy read, oddly enough, because theologians aren't exactly the easiest writers. Uh, that book's actually really easy to read. So if you want to understand, and I'm going to use, all, definitely going to use a lot of what these three guys have written. Um, just to catch you up in case you haven't been with us for the last couple of installments of the series, uh, Jesus and the people who traveled with him, right, uh, have been spending Passover in Jerusalem. We have the Last Supper has taken place, and now they've gone. Uh, they've adjourned to the garden where the disciples fall asleep. Jesus prepares himself knowing what's to come. He's betrayed by one of his closest followers. Uh, Isaiah said that he was plain of face, and that's represented by Judas having to identify Jesus to the guards that arrest him by giving him a kiss. He singles him out and betrays him. Uh, Jesus is arrested, taken for a sham trial in front of the religious leaders. Uh, Catherine did a great job on that one. Then taken for another sham trial in front of the agent uh, for the emperor of Rome, Pontius Pilate, who, by the way, wasn't some kind of pushover, right? <laughs> he was a very... The, the historical writers of the day say he was a, like basically a tough, guy's, tough guy. Um, Wayne did a fabulous job with that. By the way, I love that you said that we always try to think of it, everything starting at the fall, but it really didn't. It started in the garden, and that's really where we want to go back to, that place of peace, that place of shalom. Um, uh, during the trial, Pilate asks Jesus a very specific question, right, in verse 2 of the 15, uh, 15.2. Are you the king of the Jews, right? Jesus replies, his only words spoken during this trial, you have said so, which is really odd, right? Yes or no? Just give me a yes or no answer. Pilate didn't ask that. He just asked the question. You have said so. Um, let's unpack that just really quickly. This is a key charge, right? Pilate knows that there is only one king, and that is Caesar. So, period, end of statement. Anyone claiming to be king is an insurrectionist, right, and would be put to death under Roman law. So it would have been a real quick way to make this thing happen. If Jesus had simply replied, yes, then it would have been game over. Instead, the text goes on with the accusations flying from the religious leaders, questioning of Pilate, of Jesus, the crowd gathering, watching the spectacle. Everything gets kind of whooped up, right? Whooped, <laughs> there's a word. Um, Jesus remains silent. In fact, the text says that Pilate is amazed. He's amazed. In all of this going on, he looks at Jesus and he's, he's amazed. It's an amazing word. I don't know how to unpack it other than to say the fact that it's there is stunning. That this man, this, this guy that was in charge, who was absolutely in charge, who was wealthy, privileged, all of those things, looks at this poor rabbi standing before him and, and is amazed. And he is silent. There is the release of a condemned murderer, murderer Barabbas, uh, the sentencing of this innocent person. Mark's writing is very succinct, right? It, it's, it, it's almost terse. Just boom, boom, boom. The facts, nothing but the facts. Like Dragnet, if you guys remember that. It's just the facts. Mark's writing, it, it's, yeah, it, it's just 
like an AP writer. I've said that before. Having, it ends with, in this trial, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. There's just no emotion in that. It's just boom, boom. We're not whipping anything up at this point. Mark is simply stating what has happened. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So here's the teaching title, uh, Crucifixion and the Death of Jesus. You'll notice, uh, you may or, well, you probably have never noticed this because it's just something in my head. Uh, when I use the scriptures out of the NIV, because that's tend to where I lean, because that's just how I was raised. There's all kinds of good translations out there, but NIV I just like because of its succinctness. Uh, I, they have these headings at the tops of chapters saying what's coming next. Also, when I watch Netflix, I fast-forward through that because I hate knowing what's coming next. I want to be surprised. A lot of the... And those weren't in original Scripture. So I take them out. I'm like... I edit that out because I don't need that. Except this time in the NIV, their headings are the crucifixion of Jesus, and I think it's the next one, it's the death of Jesus. That's it. And when I was trying to come up with some sort of title for the teaching today, I thought, I can't say anything more than that. So that's why it's there. At the trial before Pilate, Jesus' silence tells us of his willingness to suffer. At his trial, Jesus' silence tells us of his willingness to suffer. We know he knows what's coming. He's been talking about it now for multiple chapters. In the garden, he talks to the father about it. And now he's standing there, and he's going down that trail. And he's close, and he knows it. If it were me, you couldn't shut me up, right? I'd have been talking a blue streak to Pilate, trying to give him everything about my life and why maybe you don't want to nail me to a cross or whip me or do anything with me. Just let me go, right? He's absolutely silent. Jesus' silence tells us of his willingness to suffer. The Son of God, a God that suffers and dies on a cross. I'm unaware, and maybe at the conversation, those of you that are, if there's something here that I've missed, I'm unaware of any myth, legend, or other religious writing to compare with the story of Jesus of Nazareth. This idea of, of, a, of, a, of the death of a deity. There are those elements within Greek mythology, but it's nothing like this. Nothing like this. It's kind of confined to the ancient Near East and Christianity. This is what Mark has been driving toward since the first lines of his gospel, his God's spell, his good news. The cross historically was an instrument of execution and control and was as dark as things can get, right? It was a political and a military punishment. It was carried out in a public place, right? Stripped naked, something hugely embarrassing, right? Hugely embarrassing. Stripped naked where all could see to maximize the humiliation of the condemned. Arms lashed or nailed to a wooden beam. Their offense scribed on a plaque above their heads. This often used public punishment utilized by Rome uh, was for condemned criminals of the lower classes who had no rights. 
It cast a shadow of suppression for any of those who would threaten the law, order, or ultimately the state. It was a means of control. Iron fist, as it were. Jesus was tried, convicted, and sentenced to the cross. The Christian church, and some of you may think, really? Has struggled with this since the beginning. This idea, right? This is why Paul wrote this. Jews demand a sign, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ, comma, I'm going to add, crucified, comma, (laughs) that word right there. (laughs) I'm adding, I'm teasing about adding to Scripture. I'm just saying, think about that. Crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The cross, as I've said before, has a branding problem, right? For an object that adorns just about every Christian church in the world, through the centuries to today, there continues to be attempts to limit the cross's potential to offend, right? To deny the need for it to move quickly past the suffering and focus more on the resurrection. I give you the buddy Christ. Those of you that remember that old movie, right? We want to move past it. I mean, even just the way churches put together Easter celebration, right? Good Friday is always kind of a... Right? People are uncomfortable. These attempts to dilute the strength of what the cross represents, that God, with a capital G, would take human form, suffer, and die. Jesus proclaims in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word, man, ransom. We should wrestle that. Wrestle with that word, ransom. Out of his own lips. Why did Jesus go to the cross? It can be summed up in one word, and, oh, and this is a big one, and we've had, we've had a series on this, and I'm going to go back to just, for some of you, just to refresh, just so we can just pound at home. This word is called atonement. Simply put, right, the reconciliation of God and humankind through Jesus. Atonement. One word, right? One word. Simply defined in eight words. <laughs> Laugh with me. <laughs> If you were here for our atonement series recently, the Christian church developed, couldn't come down with like one idea, right? There's a lot of ideas out there, but there are four that are considered like pillars for traditions over the centuries to try to explain what this is all about, right? Why did Jesus go to the cross and die? Christus Victor, Christ's victory over sin, death, and demonic powers. Sin is not just personal failure, it's a force of death in creation. Satan, fallen angel, and his minions have infiltrated every structure and are vanquished through the cross and resurrection. So there's one. Two, satisfaction theory. The fall created a debt, right, that must be paid to restore God's honor and renew his creation. The debt is paid and the honor is restored through Christ's work. Three, moral example. The cross demonstrates God's love for us. 
And we are to extend that same love to others. Four, substitutionary atonement. Probably the most common thing taught. God's justice demands that a price must be paid. All four of the atonement metaphors that I've just read to you come down through the centuries. They all, opinion, contain truth. They all contain truth. The cross is God's demonstration of love. It is Christ's victory over death and demonic powers. Jesus paid to restore God's honor, fulfill his justice, and renew his creation. Victory, debt, honor, justice, love. It's all of those things. Before we look at our passages for today, let's set the location in our minds once again. Catherine did an amazing job with this, so I took her map and I added a map to it. Um, Can you see all this? See, it's got the Last Supper down there in the corner. Uh, You got Jesus' high priest, Peter's denial right there in Caiaphas' house. Uh, You got Herod's fortress, uh, Herod's uh, palace. That's where uh, uh, Pontius Pilate used to hang out when he would come to town. Uh, You got, oh, right there, crucifixion and burial, crucifixion and burial. How many have been to uh, Israel? How many have been to Jerusalem? So, you, right, you know that it seems like everything there, there's always like two of them. Well, we think it's here, or we think it's here. If you go to the garden tomb, right, it's exactly what you would think. It looks like, yeah, and they've got like this, this uh, uh, mountain that looks like a skull, and you're like, all right. I mean, it just it fits, right? They've got a tomb with a stone, and you're like, this is, this is the place, thing of it is, is that, I don't know when that was developed, but the one, the sepulcher in the middle, this one down here on the lower, uh, uh, where it says, in burial, that tomb was uh, been there since, or was located in 345 AD, I think it was, so like 300 years after the death of Christ. It's in the middle of a church. It's kind of weird, right? You got like this little box in the middle of this giant church and and but that's really the one archaeologically speaking they believe even though the other one felt to me I'll never it's like wow this feels like the place um so there you go and that by the way is a map from the 1800s I just thought it was cool Ken knows I love maps the church of the holy sepulcher yeah versus the garden tomb all right let's get on to the scriptures The crucifixion of Jesus. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull or the place of the scalp. Um, Simon was from north side of Africa, uh, near uh, Libya. He He was historically considered a person of color. It is the ancient Near East, so most of the people there were people of color. Um, uh, something we don't know. We can surmise through the text. Was he Jewish or was he a Gentile? Um, in Luke's gospel, it says he was coming in from the field. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean he was out there working in the field. It means he could have been walking. He was late getting to the, the party that was happening in Jerusalem, right? The, the celebration of Passover. Uh, Simon, in that region, in North Africa, uh, there was an enclave of Jews, and Simon's a common Jewish name. So, 
Possible he was Jewish. Also possible he's Gentile. Text doesn't give us an indication. There is something here that's interesting, though, in my mind. And our commentator points it out. Uh, Mark doesn't normally, one, say the name of everybody that he has contact with. Uh, let alone does he name someone and then name their sons, right? It says, uh, Mark, uh, he mentions Alexander and Rufus, right? Mark was writing to the church in Rome. So one way of looking at this, just kind of taking a step back, is that Rufus and Alexander are, are mentioned because the people in Rome know them, that potentially they may be members of the church in Rome. We don't know. But it, that, that, the fact that Mark did that is, first off, the fact that somebody is mentioned by name. I give you the Syrophoenician woman, if you want to go back and read that part. She doesn't have a name, and she's amazing in Scripture. But Simon is mentioned by name. So there's something there. Uh, Rufus is also mentioned later uh, in the book of Romans, 16, 13. <laughs> Alexander, you're out, dude. Sorry. He's not mentioned again. Um, could this be the son of Simon? We don't know, but it's in Romans. Mark is writing to the church of Rome. Anyway, you see where I'm going. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it, and they crucified him. Dividing his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. This, uh, especially that part about the casting of lots, the gambling for the clothes, that it was okay for the, the Romans that were executing people to take bits and pieces from them for their own use, uh, is mentioned in Psalm 22.2. I'm sorry, not 22.2. It's 22.16 through 19. Psalm 22.2 mentions Jesus' cry just before he dies. Um, This is all part of the suffering servant that is found in the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm not going to unpack all that, but I give that to you if you've never heard of it. It's worth looking up. Psalm 69 also and Isaiah 53 all contain elements of what's going on here in the crucifixion. Moving on. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, i.e. an insurrectionist. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross now that we may see and believe. And then those crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. So I said here at the very beginning that it's terse the way Mark presents this whole trial and it's scourging and really the beginning of the execution. It's just boom, boom, boom. And yet now we have these two passages that we just showed Keep this up, though, Jeff, because I love that. I mean, I don't love it, but I, it, the drawing is fantastic. I think it's Michelangelo, so, you know, the guy knew what he was doing. Um, suddenly, we have these two chunks of, of Scripture, you know, long chunk of Scripture, devoted to the mocking of Jesus. 
mocking that takes place from Jews, Gentiles, the leaders of, of his, his community, the religious leaders, and, and, and the guy can't even catch a break. Even the thieves that, that are, he's being executed with won't even take him in or, 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 or befriend him or feel like they're in solidarity together. He takes time to describe the mocking of Jesus. Right? It comes from all corners. <laughs> Moving on to the religious leaders of his community who taunt him to save himself so that they can see and believe. Uh, just a quick aside there. When you read the text of the scriptures, they are always there when Jesus does his miracles. Practically always. Right? I mean, they're there. They've seen the blind man healed. They've seen the leper. They saw the woman who's hemorrhaging stop hemorrhaging. They know all of this. In fact, with the blind guy, they bring him in. And then he says, well, I, I, I was blind and now my blind eyes are open. And they go, ah, and they throw him out. They knew this very well, how much belief was fostered during those miracles. So here they stand at the foot of Christ's cross and they tell him, ah, come down and then maybe we'll believe. Yeah, sure. Jesus has already asked the Father in the garden just before his arrest, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup for me. And in absolute obedience, committed to God's atonement, his plan, saying these words, yet not what I will, but you will. Mark 14, 36. So let me ask you a hypothetical. What if Jesus had done exactly that at this moment? Performed a miracle and saved himself, right? Like some kind of modern-day superhero, right? Some sort of action hero. Uh, dominating and destroying his enemies, right? Calling down an angelic host from heaven in their fierce regalia with their big swords. And they take Jesus off the cross and they run him out like the president, put him in a limo, and he drives away. What about that? Would such a display foster belief? I don't, I don't think so. My little diatribe about all of the different miracles that the Pharisees saw and didn't foster any belief. In his book, The Good News, according to Mark, Edward Schweitzer says this, this is the very thing that would destroy the possibility of belief. Just as a marriage would be destroyed if one partner were to employ a private detective to gather visible evidence of the other partner's faithfulness. Not unfaithfulness, faithfulness. I'm going to get a detective, you know, and have him follow my partner around. Does that foster belief? This is how God differs from any person, right? Any man, woman, person, or superman. He does not have to assert himself, nor is it necessary for him to crush his enemies. The mocking continues, right, with those who are suffering crucifixions with Jesus. Not even the men to his left and right keep company with him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabanthani, which is in Aramaic and, of course, back in Psalms, it's in Hebrew, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
So the last bit of abandonment is the father. And at this point, Jesus is utterly alone. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff, offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to take him, or ta- comes, comes to take him down, he said. This, this little bit has always baffled me a bit because it could be that maybe they, because it was, there was a belief because Elijah was taken up into heaven that he would come down and help, you know, almost like St. Patrick, find my lost items, that kind of thing, right? They, that Elijah would come down. And so maybe there was an honest belief in that. And maybe they were giving him wine with vinegar, which just doesn't sound good, to prolong to see Elijah. But it just, on the other hand, it just seems absolutely cruel. The idea of prolonging a, a condemned person's hours just to see if something cool and supernatural would happen. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, which is at odds with the death by crucifixion. Because crucified people died from asphyxiation because they could no longer have the strength to pull themselves up to breathe. They're down in this position and eventually they just drowned, basically. So the, uh, this, this moment when he cries out, it, it's, it's at odds in some ways with physiology. And it also gains the attention of the bystander. the centurion. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So we have two supernatural elements that bracket the death of Jesus. The sky turns dark at noon. Um, There was all kinds of things about when like Caesar died that there were these sightings. This is different, though. This isn't um, some sort of a, uh, an eclipse. This is, this is a moment that has no explanation other than it was God. Um, the sky turns dark at noon. It's a sign that indicates that this occurrence is not just here. It's in the heavens. It's in the universe. Then right after the death of Jesus, the temple curt cloth is torn in two. Now, there were two cloths, Right? We don't know which one it was. And there's all kinds of debate among scholars about which one it was. I mean, you can look in Hebrews, it talks about that. But Edwards points out in his commentary something I just thought was fascinating. And this was the word for the day. Uh, Shizen. Shizen? Shizen? Shizen. Which is in the Greek, to split. Uh, to tear, divide, to be torn. This word occurs twice in Mark's gospel, which is fascinating to me. In chapter 1, way back when Jesus is being baptized and the heavens tear open and the voice of God says, this is my son whom I love. Or he says specifically, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. It's the same word, only used twice in Mark's gospel. I don't think that we can just push that aside. And here, 
which we've just read near the end of, this, of Mark's gospel in 1538. This physical barrier, no, no matter what. If, oh, yeah, next one. Just so you can kind of get a... So there's the temple. You have the uh, uh, court of the women and the court of the men. So the court of the women is a big one, if I'm getting this right. Court of the men are on the other side of the little box. Am I being clear here? Are you getting this? So court of the Gentiles is the giant one. That's where Jesus cleared, you know, that's what this... He, he, he had his whole confrontation with members of the Sanhedrin. And then you have the court of the men and the women, uh, the women and then the men, and then in the, the little place is the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, which the new Indiana Jones just came out. Um, but if you remember in that one, right, they kept the Ark, uh, and Spielberg did a great job with it. I thought, I thought it looked cool. Uh, the guy's face melts. Um, never mind. That, that wasn't in my notes. That wasn't in my notes. Jen will say there was another re- movie reference because I always have a movie reference. But there were two curtains. And, and, and the one curtain that was between the court of the women and the court of the men was pretty cool, right? It, it says it was embroidered, the historical text, with the universe. And I love from like a theatrical standpoint the idea of that tearing that one in half. But the word that is used in the text actually points more toward the Holy of Holies, which goes to that idea that that barrier between humans and God has been ripped asunder. This event was, by the way, it also represents the end of temple, all temple ritual. So... This event was simultaneous with the declaration of the centurion present. We will get to him in a minute. Uh, I'd like you to consider this quote from James Edwards. He says, The cross is the intersection where God meets humanity. Saving confession is not predicated on prior knowledge, proximity to Jesus, or privilege. It is rather an act of faith in a divinely revealed act of atonement. That's a concise definition. So an example for us today. I want to go back to the beginning of this. I want to go back to where this bit of Scripture started. Um, Really just one back, 20B. Then they led him out to crucify him, to set the stage. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. The fact that Simon is named, I can't emphasize enough, says there's something important about him. And in this side of heaven, we know that by the text that he carried the cross for Jesus. That's important. What else he did with his life, we don't know. But we do know that he had two sons that were known because they're mentioned. And if you take that idea that that uh, they were in the church in Rome, that means that Simon led a life that led his sons to follow in that faith. And I think that's profound. But in the text, the thing that we can, I think that we can hold on to with both hands, standing here today in the year 2023, is that Simon is the first person ever to literally fulfill the command of Jesus to take up the cross and follow me. 
he picked up the cross and followed Jesus. Jesus spoke these words to the crowd that surrounded him, including the disciples and his followers in Mark 8, 34, when he said, he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny that word, underline it, themselves and take up their cross and follow me. To be a Christ follower is not just symbolic. It's not just the cross on our roof, in the back of our church, around our neck. We must follow him, right? This is, I repeat this to myself because I fail at this every day. It requires action, movement. There is risk. There is suffering. Not an easy thing to preach. Acting in obedience as Jesus boldly showed on the cross, the denial of self-interest, not me, him, being driven in our action by deeds, by love. That opening song, and I wanted to just blubber, the, the, the just be nice. How about that? People are watching those of us that follow Christ. They're not watching us to see if our theology is right or the decor in our church is black. <laughs> They're watching to see how we treat people. <laughs> that's, I don't get it. I don't get how that's not being preached from every pulpit around. Very, Jesus said, very I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. IHS, the abbreviation in Greek for Jesus. At the cross... We have the prime example of an act of faith. A person who had no prior knowledge, no proximity to Jesus until he was hanging on a cross, and he really had no privilege. I mean, you can argue that a centurion had some form of privilege, but that privilege was earned. It wasn't given to him. The only thing he had going for him is that he was really good at fighting and killing, and he had seen a lot of people die. And for that man to stand there and hear Jesus' cry and say the words, surely this man was the Son of God, that's profound. It was how Jesus died on the cross that led him to make that statement. And in that statement, he uses the past tense, surely this was the Son of God. He uses the past tense was on that Friday afternoon because he had no idea what was coming Sunday morning. I'd ask the band to come up and uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, uh, for this text. I thank you for your suffering, for your sacrifice. We give you our worship and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.